This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to the program once more. I hope your week has gone well without anger and you've found much to smile at. We've been talking about patience, the antidote to anger, over the last few programs, and in particular the patience that is indifferent to the harms inflicted by others. In the last two programs, we considered a number of points to meditate on to turn the mind from anger so that instead of retaliating, we develop compassion for those who potentially irritate us. If you were with us, you may remember we said that someone who is behaving badly is like someone with mental difficulties, and in the same way that we don't harm someone mentally ill, we shouldn't retaliate to anyone who's being aggressive towards us. They are, after all, temporarily mentally ill. We also considered the point that only aggressive beings give us the opportunity to practice patience. Of course, our best friends will usually treat us well and not try to irritate us, so we can't count on them to help our practice of patience. In contrast, with our enemies, we really have to practice hard not to lose our patience. Then we can remember that we all act under the law of cause and effect, or conditioning if you like, so it's inevitable that we will meet difficult people in this life. We can only overcome their harm if we take control of our own minds and with powerful patience not even think of returning their harm. Then whatever they do, they will not be able to harm us. Of course, with their aggressive attitude, harmful people are harming themselves much more than they harm us. So that's another reason to develop compassion for them and not return the harm. And anyway, the real cause of our suffering is not others' actions towards us, but our own negative karma. If we had not harmed others in the past, we would not be in the path of harm now. We can also consider that if this negative karma had ripened during a lower realm rebirth, we would suffer much more intensely. So actually by exhausting this karma now, we're being saved from much worse suffering later on. We also talked about the man and the stick, if you remember. If a man beats us with a stick, we blame the man, even though it's the stick that's causing the damage. We think the man is operating out of some kind of free will, but that's not the case. Just as the stick operates purely under the compulsion of the man, the man is operating under the compulsion of negative karma and afflictive emotion. So we should be angry with the afflictive emotion, not the man. Considering the great benefits of patience, we can actively look for situations that test us and help develop our patience. Like the great master, Atisha, who had a very grumpy attendant. When someone asked him why he didn't get rid of the attendant, Atisha replied that the attendant was a great help in his practice of patience. So that's why he kept him on. The point also arises that we don't normally get angry with inanimate things like sicknesses that harm us. So why are, why are we irritated by animate things like other people? Both are merely collections of causes and conditions and under the influence of many other things. Neither is, operates independently, so we have no cause to treat them differently. Finally, we talked about how nothing in the situation has independent inherent existence. Neither me, nor the other person, nor our behavior towards each other has any independent inherent existence. It's all just a collection of causes, conditions and parts labeled by the mind. It's all like a dream, an illusion. So what is it that we're getting grumpy at? 
It's as foolish as getting angry at a person on a TV screen. Essentially, that person, as well as what we think is a real person, is energy and colored lights. So we can think of any of these points to steadily train our minds to be more peaceful in the face of any sort of aggression from others, even from a wild animal. Thinking over them again and again will help to build some understanding in our minds and in due course we will have some protection against what the Buddhists call our worst enemy, anger fueled by hatred. Now that's a very brief coverage of the points we meditated on last week. And this week we're going on to the patience of voluntarily accepting suffering. But before we do that, let's set our motivation for being part of this program today. Once again, remember that motivation is the most important part of any action. And so if we can motivate well, the action has a good chance of producing a happy result for us. Whereas if our motivation is poor, even though the action seems amazing to others, it may not bring very favorable results in the future. With this in mind, let's make our present motivation as vast as possible. That is, to attain our highest potential so that we can be like the Buddha and spend most of life here on earth helping others. Please try to set such a, such a motivation, but if you can't, at least think that this program is an instrument to help you on your particular journey to enlightenment. Thank you. Now, having a firm idea in our minds about what to do when faced with harm from others, how should we take on suffering and misfortune not directed by others and turn it into the path to enlightenment? This is our next question. If we look at our lives and the world around us, we can easily see that our environment is filled with situations that have the potential to bring us suffering. If we don't do something to counteract the effects of such situations, we can easily become overwhelmed by our difficulties and then life becomes extremely hard to bear. But with a form of patience that voluntarily takes on the suffering and transforms it, we can make difficult situations very useful on our path to enlightenment. It's a bit like using the venom of a snake to create its own neutralizer, a kind of suffering vaccination if you like. They're not quite as easy as a small needle prick. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you will know that we are discussing patience in the context of the six perfections that a Bodhisattva practices to attain enlightenment. For those who haven't been with us, a Bodhisattva is someone who takes on the responsibility to attain full enlightenment to completely alleviate all the suffering of all beings. That mind that the Bodhisattva cultivates is called Bodhicitta, and it gives us a way of viewing suffering that immediately relieves us as well as creating a lot of positive potential. When we get into a suffering situation, we can think that not only are we taking on our own suffering, but we're also taking on ourselves all the suffering of all beings, and so leading them to enlightenment. Normally, as soon as we experience some suffering, we want to be free, we want to push it away. That, believe it or not, makes the suffering much worse. It's like having to go to the dentist and worrying for days before about how painful it's going to be. By the time you get to the dentist's chair, you're sweating from fear and trepidation and the whole experience is thoroughly dreadful. In contrast, using bodhicitta, we can actually welcome the suffering, thinking that through our experience, we are relieving countless others from their misery. You might think this is very weird, but it's actually a very good strategy. 
immediately your mind becomes happier and, and the suffering doesn't seem so bad. I have personal experience of this, which I've mentioned in a much earlier program. Going to the dentist, I refuse to have injections. In all truth, their effects seem to be much worse to me than the pain of the dentist's probing instruments. So I always have tooth fillings and so on without anesthetic. In his place, I imagine as strongly as I can that the pain I'm feeling is the suffering of all beings, and I'm gladly taking it on so that they become free. By the time the dentist has finished his work, I usually have some discomfort, but very little suffering, and my mind has stayed peaceful and untroubled. It really does work. In contrast, I like to tell the story of a woman who flew from England to holiday for two weeks on a large charter yacht I was crewing on in the Caribbean. The yacht was a 109-footer called Carriad. It was built by Lord Dunraven at the beginning of last century to race in the America's Cup. She's a beautiful old yacht, but very sturdy in, our, in today's terms. She was anchored in Granada, one of the Windward Islands, where on the particular evening this man and, her, and his wife arrived, the sea was as calm as a mill pond. The boat was just very slightly rocking. It was almost as if she was not moving at all. Yet this woman, we learned, had spent the whole trip from England worrying about being seasick. She probably started worrying about it as soon as her husband mentioned booking the trip. Anyway, as soon as she walked on board, she rushed, rushed to the side and vomited into the harbour. Nothing about the boat could have made her seasick. It was so calm. Only her suffering mind had convinced itself that she was going to be nauseous. So she was. Once she got used to the boat, she was fine and I think enjoyed the rest of her cruise. It just shows that so much of our suffering comes from our mind and not from the troublesome situation we might find ourselves in. Anyway, another way to think of suffering is to recognize that it is the very nature of cyclic existence. And then the more suffering comes, the more we will want to be free of it. One of the reasons that human beings are regarded in Buddhism as having the best type of rebirth is that we have just enough suffering and pleasure to understand what it is to get free and to work towards that freedom. In other realms like the animals, it's impossible to recognize the nature of our existence and so it's impossible to work for freedom or, or enlightenment. When we suffer, we have the intelligence to know what is going on and to generate the wish to be free. In other words, suffering brings us renunciation of cyclic existence. It acts as a spur to make us do the hard work to get out. If our lives were always pleasurable and without misery, why would we ever imagine of changing? So suffering is useful if it really strengthens our resolve to practice harder and to get out of this type of existence. Like the great Tibetan Lama, Kirti Tsensabrimshe, who when he heard he had liver, terminal liver cancer, rejoiced, saying that up to then all his practice had been theoretical, but now he had a wonderful opportunity to make what he had learnt practical. And so he died very much at peace, though, of course, he was a very highly realized master and so would probably have died peacefully anyway. But the point here is that the more we suffer, the greater our renunciation and the more we will avoid doing those non-virtuous things that lead to more suffering. 
Instead, we will do all we can to do virtuous actions that will lead us onto the path to final liberation from all our suffering. Another benefit of suffering is that it reduces our pride and arrogance. As one commentary says, it's very difficult even for a king to feel superior when he's lying flat on his back in bed, vomiting and making a mess. Like death, illness brings us all down to the same level, and so some of our most insidious afflictive emotions are weakened, if not eradicated. Okay, so now, say you come home one day, and your partner tells you the relationship is over, and they're off with someone else. We all recognize this as one of the more intense emotional sufferings we come across. You might have had the idea that the relationship would be long-term because you had never imagined an end to it. But the truth of the matter is that it was always only temporary. Why? Because everything is impermanent and everything that comes together must fall apart. This is the cornerstone of Buddha's teachings, but we don't really ever want to admit it. So the relationship was always headed for its end, even though we thought it wouldn't. In our heads, we might have thought this could end at any time, but we never thought it will end tonight or tomorrow, perhaps in the next hour. We always expect our partner to be there as usual tomorrow. And in effect, that is the same as thinking they would never leave. So it comes as a big shock when they do. Some of the pain will be relieved if we can admit that impermanent nature of things and accept that the time of parting had come, not because of the vile nature of our ratfink partner, but because the causes and conditions could no longer sustain the, the relationship. Karma takes its course and we have to suffer or deal in some way with the consequences. And so, remembering that our suffering, whatever it is, relationship breakup, illness, loss of a loved one, financial failure, is the result of our negative karma also helps us cope with the situation patiently. As we mentioned before, when we talked about suffering from another's harms, we can think that if this karma had ripened in a lower realm rebirth, the suffering would be immensely more difficult to bear. So it's good that it's happening now. And once it is over, the karma is finished, and we will never have to experience it again. Especially if we're very focused on Dharma practice, we will inevitably encounter all sorts of difficulties and problems. It sometimes seems that trying to free ourselves from suffering by practicing the Dharma, we only attract more suffering. But it's good because all that karma is being purified by our practice, and so in the future we will have much less negative karma and hence less suffering to put up with. As Geshe Lodin says in his book, Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, by the power of their virtue, what would otherwise have resulted in great and extended suffering in a future can be experienced now as, say, a minor suffering of a headache. In that frame, negative results can be seen as beneficial because they reduce your store of negative karma. We can also use small sufferings to gradually increase our patience. Instead of quickly escaping minor irritations, we can actually stay with them training our mind to deal with them without aggression. The more we are able to do this with minor sufferings, the more able we will be to later apply the same patience with major upsets. In the same way as when we want to learn to swim, we first spend time paddling about in the shallow pool, getting used to the water and moving in it, 
we train ourselves to get used to reacting with patience to minor sufferings. Eventually, through our practice in the pool, learning more and more, we will be able to swim several lengths without problem. Similarly, through our initial practice with small sufferings, we will be able to take on great sufferings like liver cancer with a peaceful and joyful mind and not suffer so much at all. Then when we are going through a stressful time, it's best to remember those much worse off than ourselves and there are always beings in worse situations than us. Seeing our situation as not so bad in comparison will give our minds relief from the suffering and could actually invoke compassion in us. Whereas if we continually compare ourselves to those in better situations than ourselves, we're likely to feel jealous and intensely miserable, wondering, why did it have to happen to me? Why is everyone else doing so well and I'm always in such trouble? And thoughts to that effect. Especially in New Zealand, we are in fact in an extremely good situation. We live in a land of mainly peaceful and tolerant people, we have an abundance of food, and we can easily find the shelter we want. This is a land without wild, dangerous and poisonous animals or insects, and it has many beautiful attractions to entrance us. Best of all, we've come across the Buddha's teachings and can easily practice them, and so we can get whatever we wish for, both in a worldly sense and spiritually. Compare this to a person living in a village in Africa where the nearest water is a single village tap or a hike across the felt or through the forest where wild animals are always on the prowl to a place of crocodiles. Food is something you have to grow or hunt every day and poisonous snakes and insects are everywhere. Life is cheap and sickness can be rife as with HIV in South Africa. In such a situation, it will be very difficult to practice anything, never mind the Buddha Dharma, even if we came across it, which is unlikely. I think the old Tibetans must have been very hardy people because they lived in such difficult circumstances, but still many were able to practice strenuously and even gain realizations. Perhaps the difficulty of life was what made them do it, and for us things are too easy. They say that when things are easy, we tend to sit back and relax, and we need a bit of suffering to spur us on to practice. So we can see here, suffering does have its uses, though too much suffering will harm our practice if we're not strong enough. One verse in the great Master Shantideva's text, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, goes, If there's a remedy when trouble strikes, what reason is there for despondency? And if there's no help for it, what use is there in being sad? Don't you think this explains a very good attitude to cultivate? If a solution exists for the situation that is making us suffer, then all we have to do is to apply it. But if we can't do anything about it, then we just have to practice patience in the very best way that we can until it changes. Because sooner or later, it will inevitably change. Think about a problem you may have had last year that seemed at the time terribly important. Is it still that important? Or if I hadn't mentioned it, would you have even remembered it? So many of our troubles are like that, aren't they? At the time, they seem world-shaking, but just a few months later, we can hardly remember what the fuss was all about. If we follow Shantideva's advice, we can really remain quite realistic and positive about the difficulties that strike us, even if they are quite serious. But what our neurotic minds tend to do is worry about things 
and that just makes it all much worse. In fact, having thought about the Buddha's teachings, I've come to realize that worry actually doesn't do any good at all. It just increases our suffering. Normally, the outcome we worry about doesn't happen, or even if it does, it's not as bad as we thought it would be. Unless we like the lady who worried herself sick about being seasick. I've never heard about worry curing a troublesome situation, but have seen lots of people made very unhappy by worrying. Following Shantideva's advice, being clear-headed and not letting our emotional projections get the better, better of us seems to me to take a lot out of the suffering in any situation. Trolling the internet, I came across a couple of poems that I think also sum up our situation nicely. The first one was written by the American poet, songwriter and children's book author Shel Silverstein, who wrote the song A Boy Named Sue that Johnny Cash made a huge hit of at the end of the 1960s. Anyway, he wrote a poem called What If that goes like this. Last night, while I lay thinking there, some what-ifs crawled inside my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang their same old what-if song. What if I'm dumb in school? What if they've closed the swimming pool? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I get sick and die? What if I flunk that test? What if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a bolt of lightning strikes me? What if I don't grow taller? What if my head gets starts getting smaller? What if the fish won't bite? What if the wind tears up my kite? What if they start a war? What if my parents get divorced? What if the bus is late? What if my teeth don't grow in straight? What if I tear my pants? What if I never learn to dance? Everything seems well, and then the nighttime what-ifs strike again. You can see he was a writer for children, can't you? But isn't that just what our mind does? Maybe we don't worry so much about green hair growing on our chest or never learning to dance, but we have other worries to circle around and around in our heads to make us miserable. It doesn't matter what the worries are. What matters is that they're there at all. If we can regularly apply Shanti David to them, those what-ifs might just run off and never come back again. The other poem is not quite so quirky, but I think it really gets to the heart of our thinking and it expresses the Buddhist point of view so clearly. The author of this, this one is that great poet Anon, so I can't tell you anything about him or her. The poem, though, is called Two Days We Should Not Worry, and it goes like this. <clears throat> there are two days in every week about which we should not worry, two days which should be kept free from fear and apprehension. One of these days is yesterday, with all its mistakes and cares its faults and blunders, its aches and pains. Yesterday has passed forever beyond our control. All the money in the world cannot bring back yesterday. We cannot undo a single act we performed. We cannot erase a single word we said. Yesterday is gone forever. The other day we should not worry about is tomorrow. With all its possible advers adversities, its burdens, its large promise, and its poor performance. Tomorrow is also beyond our immediate control. Tomorrow's sun will rise, either in splendor or behind a mask of clouds, but it will rise. Until it does, 
we have no stake in tomorrow, for it is yet to be born. This leaves only one day, today. Any person can fight the battle of just one day. It is when you and I add the burdens of those two awful eternities, yesterday and tomorrow, that we break down. It is not the experience of today that drives a person mad. It is the remorse or bitterness of something which happened yesterday, and the dread of what tomorrow may bring. Let us, therefore, live but one day at a time. Isn't that real wisdom? It reminds me of the Buddhist meditations on mindfulness that are calculated to make us live in the present moment and really taste life at the very moment we're living it. So often our thoughts are overtaken by worries about yesterday and projections onto tomorrow, and we lose the moment, moment of actual living. Those thoughts and projections go round and around in our heads and just cause us grief. As the poem says, they can't change the past and they certainly can't create the future as we want it, so they only make us unhappy. So let's do a little thought experiment to see where we're living at the moment. Sit comfortably and rest your hands on your legs. Now watch your thoughts without becoming caught up in them, and when something related to the past arises, tap your left leg gently. When a thought about the future arises, tap your right leg gently. When a fantasy arises in your mind, or a thought about the present, tap both legs gently.
Okay, now relax. Which did you tap most? Were you living in the past, future, in a fantasy, or were you able to keep your mind focused on your immediate experience? This meditation also helps to settle the mind down so you can do it whenever you like. But now time's up. I hope you have gained something from the program today, even if it was just to smile at the What If poem. Please dedicate any positive energy from today's program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you for joining us today, and please do so again next week. And so, until next time, goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.